You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where if there's a song that features David Bowie, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and fits in the show's theme, you know I'm going to use it. Episode 141 of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Show. My name is Sean Engel, and I'm here to cover the Green Lantern comics. As always, these are the Green Lantern comics that started with cover date June 1990 and are going to be ending with cover date November 2004. All the while, I'm going to be putting a special emphasis on my two favorite Green Lanterns, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. But, of course, as usual, since Guy's pretty much relegated to warrior status. He's nowhere to be seen in these issues, but Kyle Rayner specifically is. In fact, we're following up on last issue's thought that Kyle Rayner's constructs are getting more and more elaborate, as Jenny Lynn Hayden kind of figures that out as she helps Kyle rescue some people from a burning fire. Plus, we also get Jon Stewart trying to have an intervention with Snooky. Wait, that's not Snooky. I don't know, the orange skin kind of threw me off. It's actually Fatality, and I guess she's in prison, and they let her wear the most god-awful clothing in there. Yeah, it's it's pretty slutty. I hate to bring that up, but yes, it is. But that's what we're going to be looking at in Green Lantern number 141. Plus, we're also going to be covering the second part of the Green Lantern Dragonlord story, which deals with a character from, you guessed it, Ancient China who happens to be a Chinese monk who's fighting against an evil Chinese overlord, or emperor, or something like that. He's conflicted about whether he should be using the gift of the Green Lantern Ring, which was given to him by an alien that looks like the alien from the Faster Friends storyline, featuring Wally West and Kyle Rayner. It's an interesting story with some great art by Paul Galassi and a good story by Doug Minch. Plus, we're also going to be taking a look at some of your emails that you've written in. Thanks again, everyone, for writing it. I do appreciate that. But first off, we're going to play some obligatory podcast promos for some podcasts that I love and hopefully you will love as well. So again, after the promos, we'll be coming back to Green Lantern number 141. long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. Oh no! What will we do now? R2-D2, you found a cigarette! Well, I don't think smoking has grown up at all. Oh, don't be so ridiculous, R2. Underrules are for Earthlings. <laughs> all you need is a little rewiring, but children need to be fully immunized. I'm Jawa. Want to buy a droid? Show me what you got. Wampa, wampa, wampa! We picked up something. It's the Millennium Falcon. 
am Boba Fett. The ship you seek is nearby. Growing up Star Wars. Yay! Available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.com Offer expires May 31st, 1980. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we're back. And what you heard before Professor Allen's wonderful podcast promo for the Quarterbin Podcast, go check it out over at Relatively Geeky, was the brand new, well, not brand new promo, they're probably going to be out on episode 3 by the time this comes out, of Growing Up Star Wars, which features a cameo by a certain young member of the Ingle family who gives the line of Growing Up Star Wars yay in there. Yes, that was my daughter, Rachel, doing a little a little plug for Daddy's Boss's show, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just she's just adorable. Anyhow, enough doddering on about my children. Let's get on to some email. What do you say to that? You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and again, thank you everyone for writing into the show. I always appreciate getting emails from you guys, especially from this one, my regular frequent emailer, Mr. Scott Davis, the good man from the Great White North. He writes in this email saying, Faber's Green Lantern Run. He starts it out saying, Sean, I just finished the three issues written by Jay Ferber, and I must admit I was really impressed. I enjoyed all three of them, and I actually, and it's actually too bad he didn't have a longer run on the title. Here are some of my notes. On number 126, this is a great story about Kyle's quote-unquote deep cover in jail. I noticed that no one dies in this issue, even after all the battles between the guards and villains, etc. But whatever happened to the poor doctor on page 9 that had a severe heart attack? Did he make it? Um... Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, he's he's happy and he's living with his family upstate at the farm. Let's just go with that. Also on page 9, Scott says, Why did all the villains wait so long to use their powers to free themselves? I guess it only occurred to them at this exact moment the inhibitor collars weren't on them. It was fun to see Sonar again. I'm glad that the fans demanded him back. I don't know if demanded is actually what happened, but he's back regardless. The ending was a bit uneventful, with Kyle subduing the guards in basically one panel on page 18, but I understand that Ferber was trying to fit in a lot of stuff into this issue. The rambling girl at the end was funny, too. Is it just me, or did DC significantly increase the amount of advertisements in this issue? I was kind of wondering that myself. In this point in time, I'm seeing a lot more advertisements. Maybe it's just the propensity of video game advertisements I'm seeing. There's a lot more stuff for the PlayStation 2. The Sega Saturn's pretty much out. Uh, I actually saw some advertisements for Xbox, so I think video game advertisements are coming in a lot more. And we've gone away from the comic book advertisements or sometimes even house ads. So maybe there are more advertisements. I haven't really kept track, but I wouldn't doubt that there were. Moving on, he says, Green Lantern 127, this was a great issue about the love-hate relationship between FG and Killer Frost. I like that Fairbrother wrote Niagara Falls in this issue. I've been there once on the Canadian side, and it was amazing. Killer Frost's butt on the cover is also great. Well, I'm certain Shag would agree with you on that. I actually feel pretty bad for FG after she leaves him, but tis better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. You made a good point. Maybe FG does have some good in him. It's hilarious how happy he is jumping up in the air on page 11 after making out with Killer Frost. Well, you'd be jumping in the air as well, too. Great issue, he says. Greenlander number 128. This was a fun team-up with Kyle and Arsenal. Warrior's Bar must be the most dangerous bar in the world. Why did they let intoxicated... Sorry, why did they let intoxicated guests shoot arrows off people's heads and throw darts around? Especially they Arsenal do this because of his sketchy history. Yeah, 
Um, well, I guess uh, you can't limit someone from coming into a bar simply because, you know, they did heroin in front of a uh, green archer superhero. So there you go. The girl that suggests that Arsenal B needs to be in, inventive in bed later is hot. Uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Speaking of shooting arrows, did Arsenal and Kyle shoot their bows correctly? You're always good at calling out the artists that get this wrong. I found it weak on page 20 when Kyle says there's no time to will the ring back to his fingers, so he shoots an arrow instead of save the day. Fun issue. Um, I don't know. I've heard... I've seen so many different things about how you shoot arrows. It... The way I always remember is you always shoot... Uh, you shoot from the side that you're drawing back on. So if you're right-handed, the arrow should be knocked on the right-hand side of the bow. When it's knocked, when you're right-handed and it's knocked on the left side, that means you're having to pick up and put it over. It it doesn't make sense to me. But maybe that's maybe that's just uh, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't done archery all that much, so it could be just me being nitpicky. But I think I, I think sometimes it's just drawn incorrectly. But the you know there you go. Scott continues, overall, I really enjoyed three of these isu- these three issues, and I have to admit I'm really looking forward to the Judd Winnick run coming up. Sean, when you get to the mini-disc advertisements in your show, you always mention how it went nowhere. Well, I can give you a prime example of how important my mini-disc recorder was in my life. In the mid-2000s, I played guitar in a hardcore-slash-metal band, I used my mini-disc and microphone to take bar jams. Oh, okay, cool. I also used it to record guitar riffs for our new songs, and it was great to listen back to them to find out what was good or bad. The mini-disc recorder was like the sixth member of the band. I also used it to record a bunch of our shows, so it's great to have some recordings of my quote-unquote life in a band about ten years ago. Of course, the mini-disc has been significantly replaced by the iPhone now, but I'll never forget how important my good old friend the mini-disc was to me. I still have it beside me today. Well... I I dismissed the mini disc because I really didn't have any relationship to it. I pretty much pretty much went from cassettes to CDs to the MP3 players, and I never used the mini disc, so I never really had any connection to it. But it I I've been hearing more and more that people did have mini disc players and did have quite a few purposes for it. You know, either recording their own music or having recorded songs to be played on it. So there you go. Anyway, he finishes up saying, thanks, Sean, and have a great week. Well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate you writing in. We're going to go ahead and move on to our next email right here. And this one is from Luke Giaconetti. He titles his email, if you run out of some circle songs, maybe you could find some songs about fire. Yes, fire is always good. Luke writes in, I just wanted to drop you a quick line to say that I've been enjoying hearing about the early Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern. By 2001 or so, I had pretty much dropped off dropped off in my DC Universe wide awareness and was down to reading pretty much only The Flash. So while I think that I knew Winnick was writing Green Lantern from information on the pages of Wizard, I didn't know anything about the storylines nor developments in the book. I knew that Winnick was only that guy from the real world. And yes, I did watch the season with Puck and Pedro and Judd and the whole gang. I was in high school. Everyone makes mistakes in high school. Luke? Do not consider that a mistake. I watched, I know it wasn't the premiere season. I think it might have been the second season where it had sort of the conservative cowboy and the, uh, he was a British guy. He was kind of liberal. The girl who was the, the Hispanic girl who wanted to get married or actually I think she had to leave halfway through the show because she was getting engaged or something, you know, it, it was interesting those first couple of those first couple of years as a reality show, but then it basically devolved into pretty people trying to find places to boink. And it was it it did kind of show the the change of MTV from a station that plays oh what what should they play oh music videos to being a terrible collection of bad. Well, let's just say it brought us Snooky. There you go. 
Anyway, let's get back to the email. Luke says, before I get off topic discussing one girlfriend who was obsessed with road rules, let me say that in general, it's, it has sounded like the run of the stories from the Manhunters to the return of Fatality to the arrival of Nero and the Yellow Ring have been well-written and fun. I agree that the writing for the trade mentality of longer story arcs has set in. This was the case around this time as well with Mark Wade over in The Flash, as well across the street in Marvel in books like Iron Man and The Avengers. So that reads... It's not an entirely unwelcome development, because these longer-form stories allow the writers to explore more facets of the characters and plots. Everything is part of the larger arc, but the individual issues generally still have a beginning, middle, and end. The problem comes when only, when only the arc is a beginning, middle, and end, not each comic. Then we get storytelling, which to me has become prevalent from writers like Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Millar, where we'd have whole issues of just beginning or middle. Yeah, and... To be honest, Luke, I haven't seen that yet in the stories written by Judd Winnick. Each story could be encapsulated into its own little issue, but it does have the feel that something is going on over a course of, say, three to six to seven or eight stories. It's not specifically like what we get with Brian Michael Bendis. I know one of the big criticisms is the first issue of The Ultimates. I think... Um, uh, Paul Spataro covered this over on an issue of back or episode of Back to the Bins, where he said he felt like he was reading the first, where he was watching like the first five minutes of the Captain America movie, and it really, as a single issue comic book, it it was only setting up the overall story. So far, Winnick hasn't gotten that point. Each story builds upon the arc that he's trying to work, but it can be taken individually by itself. So. I'm I'm sensing the feel of it, but it's not to the point of it being the the story is being inconsequential. Luke continues, while I prefer one or two issue stories, there is something satisfying about sinking one's teeth into a strong six part story. I think Luke hit it on the head, it needs to be a strong long story, not a two part story that's just stretched out into six parts. But he continues on, but when you have a story which we can fit into one or two issues stretched out into six, it's just empty calories and wasted money in my book. Obviously, I should have read more because Luke just said what I said. Back to the Bins really had a great example of this, The Ultimates number 1. And again, Luke is saying exactly what I, or I said, exactly what Luke was going to say in the email. One of the worst comics I have ever read, Luke says. Any poster child for the decompressed, less-for-your-money movement which The Ultimate line kickstarted and made mainstream. So glad I read that on, so he says, so glad I read that for free on Marvel.com back in the day instead of spending actual money for it. Ouch, that's not a ringing endorsement. Luckily, it seems so far that GL has escaped that fate. Yes, it has, and I'm still enjoying it. I've also been digging the Circle of Fire storyline, especially the team-ups between established heroes and the new alternate lanterns. Very creative and fun structure with the two bookends and the standalone one-shots. Part of me would have loved to have Adam Strange and the Adam team up, though, just for the confusing dialogue. After you, Adam. Oh, no, no, after you, Adam. Please, Adam, I insist. Oh, no, no, Adam, first go. My name is Adam, and so forth. I just did those as the, uh, oh, what are those? The Chip, it's not the Chippendale Chickmunks, it's the Warner Brothers version of them. Can't remember their names. Paul Spataro would know, he'll tell me later. Luke finishes up with, yes, it's come to pun, puns, so I'll sign off. Luke. Well, thank you, Luke, again for writing in. It's great to hear from you. Luke does the podcast Earth Destruction Directive, which I don't know, as of the time of this show, there might be an extra episode out, but the last episode I did with him was a supersized episode where we covered Ultraman, uh, the uh, one with Antlar, and oh, the one with uh, Shandara, and Pigman, and oh, what's the uh, Red King? It was it was a bunch of great, and we also did uh, Shogun Warriors, I think, number 13. It was just a heck of a lot of fun. Go check out Earth Destruction Directive if you like anything dealing with giant monsters, uh, Super Sentai, Tokusatsu, and yes, thank you, Luke, for getting me into uh, Tokyuger, which is incredibly uh, interesting and awkward at the same time. Plus, Luke also does the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which we recently, well, recently, I guess, recently of this record, finished up our Halloween episode where we all put forward a story of our own personal writing 
that was based off a submitted title. This time the title was Pump Me Up, and we all had different takes on it, and surprisingly, none of them were, none of them crossed over. Well, Luke's and I did a little in that we both had endings that dealt with police officers investigating what happened in the story. But that was a heck of a lot of fun. Mine was a heck of a lot of racy, which was odd, but <laughs> that was enjoyable. Plus, on the vault, we're going to be continuing our look at Friday the 13th. Plus, we're also going to be taking a look at the Don Coscarelli horror stories or horror movies in The Phantasm. I guess it's more than trilogy now. I guess there's going to be probably five movies of that coming out. So you look forward to that. But before we finish up this time, I've got one more email here from Scott Davis, and this one is about DC 1 Million. Scott writes in, Hi Sean, it took me a while to pick up the DC 1 Million issues, but it was definitely worth the wait. Stephen Lacey did a great job on the episode with you. Yes, I fully agree. I couldn't have done the episode as well if Stephen weren't there. He provided a great insight in the series, uh, Scott says. The omnibus sounds amazing, but it would probably take me a few years to get through reading all of it because I'm certain it would be a heavy read. I'm starting to become more familiar with Grant Morrison, and he's an amazing writer. He definitely put a lot of thought into it, and even it can, even if it, even though it can be difficult to read at times, I found myself really enjoying it. And the artwork by Val Semeckis was amazing throughout the series. I have a few brief notes. For DC One Million Number One, the first issue was amazing. I found it odd that no one on the Justice League considered it might be a bad idea to travel to the 853rd century to participate in challenges while leaving the protection of Earth to a future group called the Justice Legion A, without really knowing them. It turns out that millions of people in Montefiedo died because of this oversight. Vandal Savage is great in this issue, especially on page 26 when he's discussing vintage wine. Great setup issue. Green Lantern 1 million. This was a great issue with the art by Brian, and the art by Brian Hitch was excellent. The disguise that Kyle rings up on page 18 was absolutely hilarious. Yes, why he decided to disguise himself to take on Solaris was really made no sense because, oh, there's some other person in green flying at me with a power ring signature. Hmm, it obviously isn't Green Lantern because he doesn't have the crab mask on. Oh, well, whatever. Uh, he said it was so ridiculous that it completely took me out of the story. DC 1 million number 2 and 3. These were great issues as well. They were pretty heavy at times, and I don't know if I could have understood everything without the help of Stephen's commentary. Great stuff. Yeah, I agree. The Morrison does get pretty heady in these issues, and these are these ones that you have to read a couple of times to know exactly what's going on, so I really... Really can't tell you how much I appreciate Stephen coming on to cover these. Finally, Scott says, Number four of DC 1 million, this was an amazing issue. The twist at the end with the kryptonite GL ring was absolutely awesome. And I agree, it's great to see Kyle as the hero in this series. Overall, I really enjoyed it. It would be nice to pick up the omnibus, but trying to find the time to read it might be tough. So I have back I have too many back issues of Green Lantern to get to. Well, I know I know I heard from Andrew Leyland that uh, Michael has read through the uh, Green or not the Green Lantern the DC One Million Omnibus a couple of times now, and uh, he says that it's been an enjoyable read. Of course, Michael is a big Grant Morrison fan, so that just makes sense. Uh, he finishes up by saying, P.S., the extended Superman song in this episode was excellent. Whenever you can play the John Williams Superman theme, I suggest you play it pretty much any time. Thank you very much, Scott, though, for writing in. I do appreciate you writing in. I do appreciate you listening. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. If you'd like to write into the show, of course, the email address is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. I read all the letters that I get on air, and I appreciate every one of you writing in. But that's time to close up the email bag, and time now to get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 141. Green Lantern number 141 was cover dated October 2001 and released on August 1st of 2001. The cover price was 225 US and 375 Canada and the title was House on Fire Part 1. The writer was Judd Winnick, penciler was Dale Eaglesham, anchor of Rodney Ramos, colors and separations were by Moose Bowman, the letter was Chris Eliopoulos, the assistant editor was Nache Castro, and the editor was Bob Shrek. 
At Slapside Detention Center, a wheelchair-bound Ray Charles asks a splaying, half-naked Snooky if she prefers to be called Fatality. Oh, wait, I guess this is Jon Stewart who's trying to have a conversation with the actual Fatality. That, that makes more sense. Seeing the abstract drawings lining her prison wall, John asks about what they are and how she's being treated here. Fatality tells him to cut to the chase and tell her why he's come to see her. If it's for some sort of intervention, that might not be in the works, as she tried to cross the th- crush the throat of the doctor who tried to psychoanalyze her, which led to them reducing the strength of her bionic arms. John tries to relate to her with his being relegated to a wheelchair, but Fatality isn't buying John's whole martyr speech. Disrobing to take a shower, Fatality thanks John for coming and hopes that next time he'll show up a little earlier in case he's looking for a little something-something that Marin might not be giving to him. Switching to something that isn't quite as awkward, Kyle Rayner sits in the offices of Feast Magazine's editor Rita Stone, listening to her rave about his contributions to the mag. Rita suggests to expand on his comic for the magazine by possibly writing a full graphic novel when she realizes that she has a benefit to go to tonight that she'd like Kyle to attend as well. Kyle politely declines, saying that he's got plans with Jenny Lynn Hayden tonight. Of course, those plans with Jenny involve some superheroics as Green Lantern. At an apartment fire, we see Jenny trying to douse the flames and rescue any people still left inside. After getting a good number of them out, Kyle comes by to rescue the rest and then extinguish the fire by covering the building with a dome and sucking all of the oxygen out crisis averted, the Green Lanterns accept some thanks from an amorous New York fireman who has a bit of a crush on Jenny, then head off to follow a heat signature that Kyle thinks might lead them to the perps that started the fire. Reaching an abandoned section of public housing, Kyle and Jenny entered the dilapidated building in hopes of tracking down the fire starters. And find them they do, only not in the way they wanted to as the entire building explodes, severely burning Kyle. Luckily, Jenny was able to get a shield up in time, saving her from Kyle's fate of having his back brutally burned. But the explosion shouldn't be the least of her worries, as now she's going to have to face down the trio of villains, calling themselves Inferno. Okay, it's not that these issues that I've recently been reading have been bad, but they just haven't been wowing me. There's a lot of good character building and seeding of plot points, and the dialogue between everyone is really good, but it's still taking a bit of time, at least for me, adjusting to Winnick as a writer. It's been over a year now in publishing time since Mars has left the book, and I'm still not 100% on with the new direction. Maybe I would have been at the time, but at this stage in my life, I'd rather just have more of what Ron Mars was doing. But regardless, this is a good story. There is good advancement of characters. However, there is a really 90s group of villains at the end. I'm not certain what they're going to be doing here, but I guess we'll find out in the next issue or even more. But let's go ahead and look at the specifics in the book. We'll go ahead and start off with the cover and... uh... Again, this is... It's not wowing me. It looks like Kyle's just sitting in a love in a hot tub filled with lava as some creepy shadow people stare at him from behind. It's... Yeah, it's, it's nothing that's really going to say, ooh, buy me. But, yeah. Page one. I know this is supposed to be Jon Stewart, and Eagle Sham does a decent job of drawing his facial characteristics and making him look like John. But what's with the dark, sting, circular sunglasses? I don't know, and I know people have discussed this before, that some people don't seem to know what to do with John Stewart exactly. And they're trying to make him, I think Judd Winnick is trying to make him more hip than he's actually supposed to be by giving him these very trendy sunglasses and this this look that just doesn't seem to fit him 
it's not that I'm disliking it, but it just it's taking me a little while to transition from how Ron Mars wrote these characters to how Judd Winnick did. But maybe, like I said, if I had been reading at the time, it'd be spread out over more than a year. I wouldn't feel it wouldn't feel so forced upon me. So maybe maybe time would have uh, helped with this. Page two, okay, a couple of things here. First off, Fatality is perhaps where is wearing perhaps the sluttiest prison jumpsuit ever. I mean, I've got to assume she has nothing on underneath them. The jumpsuit is unzipped down about to her navel, allowing pretty much most of her top half to be exposed. Plus, she's cut off the legs in a form that would make Daisy Dukes look like modest Oh, uh, almost, almost Lutheran leg coverings. So it's all kind of weird. I'm, I'm hoping all the. I do hope, however, that all the drawings that she's doing on this page have a purpose, as they look a lot like architectural bl- blueprints. So it would make sense that John would be interested in them. But I'm hoping that the the artwork here plays out later in the story. Pages three through six, and now I'm. I'm also not really certain what's supposed to be going on here. Is John trying to rehabilitate Fatality? Is he trying to assuage his guilt for blowing up her planet? Is is just this just a way to get some more cheesecake in the book? I mean, it's not clearly defined what's going on here. I guess with what we know currently about John and Fatality, this could be the beginning of the relationship that we see with these two characters. So Maybe it's just uh, something that Judd Winnick was planning on setting up, a relationship between John and Fatality. Again, not really certain, but it could, but it definitely could be. Pages 7 through 8, we get a shift to Kyle's character, and this is just more character beats with Kyle dealing with his job. It's all well and good and shows that Kyle has a life outside of being a GL, so I'm letting it go, even though Kyle still wouldn't be out of his line if he wanted to file sexual harassment charges against his boss. Because essentially she's still coming on to him and offering to take him to this fancy, uh, I guess not dinner, sort of in lieu of having a job. Uh, In real life, yes, this could be considered sexual harassment, but like I said, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't know what he could do about this. And... Maybe Kyle just rolls with it, so there you go. Page 11, panel 2. I like the exchange here between Kyle and Jenny. Kyle asks if she needs help, and Jenny says yes, stating that she's not threatened by Kyle wanting to come in and help out. Jenny is a strong female character who doesn't feel the need to make a point of how how women can do the same things about men can. They're both heroes, and they're both here to help out, and gender roles don't have a place here, especially with Kyle having more experience at being Green Lantern. Jenny's not threatened by the fact that Kyle wants to step in and help out because she feels that he's being a dominant male character and dismissing what she's doing. She's realizing that Kyle is here as Green Lantern, he looks at Jenny as an equal, and he's just offering help. There is no misogyny, there is no diminishing of Jenny's personage of being female, and Jenny realizes that. And I'm glad that Winnick addresses that, because some people could think that, oh, Kyle stepping in to try and help Jenny it means that he's trying to diminish her as a character, or diminish her as a person, being Green Lantern, when in all actuality, he's just there to help out. And I'm glad that Winnick addresses this and addresses it in a fair and intelligent manner. Page 12, Kyle creates multiple versions of himself to rescue the remaining lives in the building, including a cat named Tabasco, which I just found amusing. Again, it's showing how adept he is at creating and using realistic constructs, and I guess is progressing along the storyline that Kyle's constructs are becoming more real. I'm I'm thinking this is seeding into what's going to be happening eventually with the uh, Ion storyline that we know is going to be coming up pretty soon. After that, maybe moving to page 14, I think this is something that's incredibly brilliant and something that if there was a character like Green Lantern doing this would be a perfect way to extinguish a fire. He essentially covers the entire building with a giant bell jar and removes all the oxygen. It's a perfect way to stop a fire because with no one inside no one living in there 
there was no reason for any oxygen to be in there. You remove the oxygen, you you essentially relieve one of the things that a fire needs to burn, which is, you know, oxygen. So without that, fire is out. Let the fire cool down for a while. Once you bring the oxygen back in, it's not going to the fire is done with. So that's good thinking and good comic physics. So I like that. Page 15, we also get something here that's a little prescient as well. The lauding of heroism on the New York Fire Department. In just about a month, the New York Fire Department will be some of the greatest heroes America has seen in recent times, and it's interesting that Judd Winnick paid tribute to their heroism before it was trendy to do that. Uh, I mean, you have to have a fireman in the story because it deals with people starting fires, but the sentiment is nice, and again, kind of ahead of its time. Um, after 9-11, I think the idea of honoring firemen for doing their job would be pretty commonplace, but to see it not only, not only before that, but mere months before the whole events of 9-11 is, is, uh, I don't want to say progressive, but prescient of what Judd Winnick is doing. So there you go. Page 16. I think it's nice that Jenny is trying to look out for Kyle's secret identity on his page, uh, saying that. Maybe they shouldn't be seen hanging out together because they may realize that Kyle is dating a greenskin model. That greenskin model is a Green Lantern, and sometimes uh, the other Green Lantern hangs out with this greenskin model who is a Green Lantern. So it's nice thinking on Jenny's part of trying to keep Kyle's secret identity secret. Then after that, moving on to page 19, this is one of the things that I enjoyed with Dale E. Usham's work when he did the uh, storyline with the sort of counterparts for the Israeli-Palestinian War. This uh, page here is an amazing page of an explosion. It's great with a giant boom going over it, and the orange, the coloring also is really amazing here. But the little details he has of debris flying all over the place, it's it's a really well-rendered rendered panel and Eagle Sham right now is really impressingly not only in this book, but currently in the uh, Sinestro book as I'm reading as well. So good artwork here from Dale Eagle Sham. But then on page 20 panel three, we get, well, we get technically more good art, but just kind of painful art. I mean, Kyle is the brunt of this explosion and he unfortunately didn't get his, uh, ring shield him fast enough so he's got some severe burns all the way up and down his back and on the backs of his legs and even the back of his hair burned off it's it's pretty it looks pretty bad however for some reason his butt is perfectly fine nothing on his butt got burned so maybe his ring decided to protect his butt i'm hoping sally pascal should be uh thrilled by that Page 21, uh, Eagle Sham does a much better job at drawing Jenny. Her facial expressions are great. On the top panel, she looks really tearful and concerned. But then after she, after Kyle tells her that they're being watched and people are trying to, trying to attack them, she turns and gets this look of grim determination. And it's, it's, like I said, it's really good art by Eagle Sham. He does a great job with facial expressions. Of course, that leads us to page 22 and the introduction of Inferno. And I don't know how Sledge, Red Sonia, and Slutty Jubilee got pyrokinetic powers, but that's what we've got here. You know, I thought the 90s were over, but I guess this is some way to bring them back, because these characters do not in any way look anything but something from the 90s. Wow. But speaking of the 90s, maybe the ads will look like the 90s. Or maybe they won't. Let's take a look at them. Starting with the uh, front end side cover, we get Get Extreme, Get Right Guard, as we see comedian Dave Chappelle being sort of chokeholded by a very muscular female pro body wrestler as he's uh, promoting Right Guard Extreme. So I guess when Tom Green fell out of favor with Right Guard, they had to go to. Uh, Dave Chappelle, because, yeah, he's Rick James, bitch. There you go. 
And speaking of characters uh, shilling for advertisements in this book, we get, I guess that's Nikki Six advertising for the JVC Boombox, which is essentially a boombox with a bunch of ridiculous tweeters and mid-range speakers, and it it looks obnoxious. Looks like a it looks like a boombox grew some tumorous growths, but Nikki Six likes it so. Tumorous growths and Nikki Six going together. Yeah, you could make your own commentary there. The next page is that advertisement for the DC Extreme uh, Summer Sweepstakes, uh, presented by Tobacco is Wacko if you're a teen, which allows you to win a uh, DVD player and a set of Batman Legacy or the Superman trilogy of DVDs. That's kind of fun, I guess. Tobacco is bad, sure. Then a few more pages in, we get an advertisement for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the uh, Chris Columbus movie with uh, Daniel Radcliffe and the rest of the group. Uh, starting November 6th, it's the beginning of Harry Potter and the uh, Harry Potter trilogy. So, magic. Yay. Then some more advertisements for Tang, perfect for washing down mystery meat. So I guess... That's kind of uncomfortable with the uh, splaying uh, orangutan here just standing out. You know, his... Yeah, I don't even want to think about it. But yeah, they've got various versions of Tang, including grape, blue, and fruit punch, I guess. Delicious. Tang. But then in the middle of the book, we get perhaps one of the weirdest things I've seen. It is the DC Fall Fall Fashion Preview. And, uh... The front cover of that, I guess it's a little pull-out thing that I guess came in all of these magazines for this time. And it's got, uh, the front cover has a sort of punk skater kid. Kind of looks like Impulse, but isn't. And the advertisement on the front cover is Step Towards Prep, classic style for today's teen, raving maniac, fit in and stand out, and hip-hop flavor, how big are your pants? I guess this is for kids. Maybe this is also sponsored by the uh, uh, Lillard group or Lilliard group because it's got a sort of mosaic, kind of like those uh, uh, stained glass window mosaics of the kids smoking tobacco and coughing. Of course, saying tobacco is wacko if you're a teen. Again, if you're an adult, it's perfectly acceptable. But then they've got a series of advertisements for clothing i guess done by you know drawn by various dc characters it's i guess it's an advertisement for levi's with uh, various dc artists drawing characters wearing the levi type clothes it's really really kind of bizarre and you know i guess it's very trendy and hip-hop and plus at the end of course because it's for teens there's an advertisement for oxy clean oxy gel so yeah there you go weird i had never seen anything like that before in my life an advertisement just stuck in the middle of a magazine drawn by dc artists promoting clothing weird the next ad is another ad about clothing, except this one says no shirt, no shoes, no X Games. I guess is the beginning of the X Games that started off in August of uh, twenty or two thousand and one. So yeah, I guess no shirt to the X Games. There you go again. Get another advertisement for Iridion 3D, the side scroller shoot 'em up game for the Nintendo Game Boy. Covered that one before. Get an advertisement for the Brendan Fraser, Bridget Fonda, Chris Kattan movie, Monkey Bone. That was one that was uh, directed by Harry Selleck, the guy who's probably best known for Nightmare. Well, I'm not certain whether he did uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, but I know he did Coraline and he did, he didn't do The Book of Life, but he also did, he did Coraline and James and the Giant Peach at the time. Uh, It's an interesting movie that really, I think, relied heavily on the character of Brendan Fraser being an interesting character that they thought would carry the movie, and he just didn't. Unfortunately, I haven't seen this. I've only seen bits and pieces of it. The animation, the stop-motion stuff by Selleck was really good, but I don't think the movie worked all that well, I guess. 
It didn't do well in the theaters, let's put it at that. Get another ad for the DC Extreme Summer Sweepstakes, where you could win a Game Boy Advance. That's kind of interesting. The back inside cover is the Dark Age of Camelot. I guess this is a role-playing game for the computer. I don't know. Yeah, I've got to assume it's for the PC. It doesn't say anything about the PlayStation or anything else. So, yeah, it's got a an axe in the middle of a map with gold coins all around it. So it's obviously a sword and sorcery game. Then the back outside cover is an advertisement for Capri's son, Big Pouch. Wild Cherry, want more? You've got two-thirds more to gulp. Not for the faint of thirst. Yeah, sugary, sugary drinks like Tang and Capri Sun are still around. Neat. Well, that does it for Green Lantern number 141. I'm going to go take a drink, hopefully not of Capri Sun, and then once I come back, I will be here to cover, well, obviously I'll be here. When I come back, I'm going to cover the second book in the Green Lantern Dragon Lord storyline. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the mole man will have an entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. Got me dying the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord. Until the Fantastic Four is no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons. King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain until it has been drained of all elemental life. So, speak Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.Libsyn. Com. It started as an idea. A flicker. Now with a simple voice email to the Superman and the Bronze Age podcast, that flicker has become a flame. Now, Russell, you're ready to start a podcast. Yep, you're ready to go. Yes, start it, and then and then we can email you. Whoa. And Russell has been, you know, the most consistent emailer. I think it's time that he does start a show. DC Comics presents. You know, after Dave's done, and... I mean, you're not covering every issue, so he could do all of them. I would highly recommend that, actually. That would be awesome. So there you go, Russell. Go for it. I can't wait to hear his reaction to this. this (laughs) Well, boys, here's your response. The DC Comics Presents show, hosted by me, Russell Bragg. On each episode, I will cover one issue of DC Comics Presents in publishing order until I reach the end of the series. I will also be covering all four annuals. Plus, I will be doing a character spotlight on each of Superman's guest stars, and I'll be going to the spinner rack to see what other comic books were available. Join me each episode of the DC Comics Presents show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com for more information. That's D-C-C-P-S-H-O-W. Hello, my name is Robert Willing, and I love comics. But my all-time favorite comics are the Alternate Universe comics. Now, that's not an obscure comic company that's known only to local comic stores. What I'm talking about are comics that gives us a different spin on characters we know and love, from your Elseworlds at DC to your What Ifs at Marvel. Why am I doing it? Well, there are two reasons. 
First of all, I love the unlimited possibilities that the multiverse has brought us, and I wanted to share that love with everyone. I will be talking about all sorts of alternate continuities. If it wasn't canon, I'll talk about it. Elseworlds, what if? Intercompany continuity is because, let's face it, very few of those count. I'll also be talking about non-canon minis like Superman Birthright, Shazam A New Beginning, Bob Layton's Hercules, and even Heroes Reborn because, let's face it, we're all glad that never stuck. And on a few occasions, I'll even be discussing the Doctor Who Unbound audios. I'll also try and get interviews and Q&As with as many comic creators as I possibly can. Now keep in mind, it does not count full running company lines or eras, so no children comics or the ultimate comics. The All-Stars, maybe. Oh, and the second reason, well... Hey, how's it going? Hey, what are you doing in my room? My room? This is mine at... Wait, Sean Ingle? What are you doing here? Sean, I'm... I'm Robert Willingan. Wait, you look like Sean Ingle. Ugh, okay, I get it. You're from a world where I'm Sean Ingle and you're me. Man, you you get visits too? Yeah. You see, folks, my house is set in a unique location of the multiverse where every world intersects, and I get occasional and very random visits from other me's. Tell me about it. Once I met a version of me where I was Guy Gardner. Pre or New 52? Neither. It was the collateral damage one. Yeah, I met him. What an absolute jerk. Oh, holy cow. That, uh, that guy got into such an ass. So join me this summer as I grab first the multiverse and share different iterations of characters you love, as well as deal with other things. And then, you know, Jacob decided to take away the whole Baldarian thing and make a Baldarian storyline. It was just awful. What the hell was he thinking? I can't even... See you soon, everyone. Elsewhere in the multiverse, look at all your favorite alternate iterations coming soon to a podcast near you. And we are back. And what you just heard there was a podcast promo for Elsewhere in the Multiverse, a show being done by Robert Willing, which is going to be covering what-ifs and Elseworlds and other such sort of alternate takes on the DC and Marvel Universe. He didn't really say when he was going to have a specific show set up, but he's looking to get one out pretty soon. And hopefully by the time this comes out, he'll have his first show out. So if that is the case, go check it out. But... Speaking of alternate universe uh, comics, yes, I plan this not at all. We're going to take a look at the alternate universe comic Green Lantern Dragon Lord number two. This one was cover dated 2001, like the last one, and released on May 16th of 2001. It had a cover price of 4.95 US and 8.25 Canada, and the title was Book Two: The Passion of Jade. The writer was Doug Mensch, the penciler was Paul Galassi, inker was Joseph Rubenstein, the letterer was Bob Lappin, colorist James Sinclair, the separations were by Digital Chameleon, the editors were Mike Carlin and Andy Helfler. Or Helfer. In the courtyard of the Imperial Palace, a grand circus featuring all kinds of amusements is performing for the portly emperor multiple chin. The festivities include amazing acrobats, exotic animals, and a mysterious magician, who is so mysterious he disappears right as he was set to perform. Turns out that magician was actually Zhong Li in disguise, who traded place with the magician in order to sneak into the palace without using his power ring. Sneaking through the chambers, Zhong comes across examples of how the emperor lives in luxury while his people reside in squalor. But none of that matters as he reaches the reason for his entrance into the palace, the defiant damsel Jade Moon. General Shan has made his way to the concubines' chambers and is planning to have his way with the Emperor's finest bedwarmer, quote-unquote, when Chong Li bursts in and delivers some consequences, copyright Alan and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights observed, to the eye-patched Asian. Zhang and Shan battle, and Zhang eventually gets the upper hand until the Emperor's guards burst in and gang-rush the Dragon Disciple. But with skill and expert timing, Zhang is able to escape with Jade Moon in tow. This outcome does not please the Emperor, who demands that Shan return with the stolen girl, the miracle worker's head, and his magic ring. Meanwhile, in the forest, Zhang Li stops to retrieve his buried ring and lantern, 
that the two fugitives stopped for some thank you and for rescuing me sex. But extended periods of fluid swapping will have to be put on hold as the Emperor set out assassins to try and take down the duo. Luckily, the two are more than capable of taking down whatever the Emperor throws at them with hand-to-hand -hand combat. But later that night, as Zhang and Jade sleep, a band of bounty hunters capture the duo and Zhang is forced to use his ring to defend himself and Jade Moon. Zhang makes quick work of the would-be assassins, leading to more thank you, Nuki, this time on a ring construct flying carpet. The next morning, Zhang and Jade are attempting to evade evil scouting parties sent out by the Emperor by making their way to the Han village. Along the way, the two relate their backstories to each other, with Zhang speaking of the alien who presented him with the Green Lantern Ring, and Jade describing what an evil fat bastard the Emperor is. Zhang Li is still not convinced that the Emperor can be corrupt until he comes across the decimated Han village. Seeing the road strewn with the bodies of adults and children alike, Jade Moon decides to convince Zhang of the Emperor's evil once and for all. As a child, Jade Moon was captured by slave traders and taken in chains to Lung Mountain, where she was sold off to the Emperor as a royal concubine. After years of quote-unquote service to the Emperor, Jade Moon received the one gift of love that came from all this hatred, her young son. Zhang realizes that the boy, whom Jade describes as having the same birthmark that she does, was the one that he dismissed when he first traveled through the Han village. Jade hopes that her son might still be alive, but Zhang Li fears that might not be the case, as the last place he saw him was the now-devastated Han village. Telling Jade to go to sleep, Zhang Li uses his ring to have a philosophical discussion about what he must do. Apparently, the last of the Dragon Lords reside in Long Mountain, that wretched hive of scum and villainy, and Zhang is going to have to head there and beat some ass, despite his desire not to fight. Awakening, Jade Moon hears the conversation and tells Zhang Li that he needs to do this with the power of the ring, despite his feelings that the power will corrupt him. Now tired from all the talking with constructs of dead masters, Zhang Li passes out, and Jade Moon secretly recharges his ring for him. The next day, Zhang Li heads out to Long Mountain after a tearful goodbye from Jade Moon. Knowing that the odds are against him, Zhang Li steals himself for the upcoming battle, which will either lead to the freeing of the last of the Dragon Lords, or his own doom. Again, like the last Dragon Lord issue, this isn't a bad story. It's a, got a lot more filler in this book than the last one, with some extended fight sequences and a lot more philosophical talky talk. The art by uh, Glessy is really good, with a lot of detail in the backgrounds. Some of the Asian characters look a bit cartoony, but it's not out and out racist as what we would see like in. Well, I hate to say in the Simon Kirby run over in Captain America, they do look stereotypical Asian, some of them, but the major characters look pretty good. The story is still divided up into numerous chapters, with some only lasting a single page, which is kind of odd, but then again, I guess that's possibly a way storytelling in Asian storytelling goes. That's redundant. Anyhow, let's go ahead and look at the issue as a whole. Starting with the cover, we get a nice a nice sort of mixture of action, cheesecake, and horror. Uh, there's a bunch of people who are behind Zhang Li, who's wielding a Green Lantern sort of lightsaber sword with uh, Jade Moon in the background in a very sort of provocative pose and kind of showing off a bit there. But it's it's a good cover by Galassi. It it would actually entices me more than the cover of the Green Lantern book, so it's got something going for it there. Page three, here's where the facial characteristics of the characters redundant again, of the Asian characters look a bit off. The MC here has a very almost joker like grin. And of course the uh the Emperor is still an enormous, enormous man, and so it's not bad, but it is, it's playing too much into the stereotype of how I think Westerners feel that Asians look. 
it's not out and out offensive, but it is a bit stereotypical. Page five, panel six, we get a weird sort of panel of these three older guys smoking opium, and it's just really randomly placed in here. But I guess it's kind of how to show that the emperor allows the decadence in his palace to go on while outside his palace, people were living, like I said, in squalor. So, yeah. But then moving on to pages 8 through 17, all of this is just a long, protracted fight scene. I mean, it's not that it's a bad fight scene. It's well laid out and flows really well from panel to panel. You can actually see from panel to panel how things are progressing. It doesn't feel disjointed in any way. But much like many Asian one-man-against-a-horde-of-enemies fights, it's pretty implausible. The fact that this one guy, even though he is supposedly trained by monks, is able to take out a dozen or so enemies armed with swords is... its Yeah, it's something that only happens in martial arts movies. Or if you're a bad man. Pages 21 through 22. Hey, I know we're on the run for our lives from a power-hungry madman, but do you mind if we stop for long enough just to get it on? Would that be okay? Yeah, this feels really kind of out of place in the story that, you know, they're escaping from these people, and suddenly, you know, it's just time to have a good old quick sex scene. Not that I mind sex scenes, but it just feels inappropriate at this time. After that, however, after that, uh, pages 28 through 24, we get more action, showing not only can Zhang Li hold his own, but uh, so can Jade Moon as she takes out one of the people who was sneaking up on Zhang Li. So I guess she's not exactly a helpless damsel in, her, in distress herself. Pages 30 through 32. Eventually, Zhang Li decides that he has to use his ring because he's going to be overpowered, he's going to be killed, and Jade Moon is going to be taken. So he finally uses the ring to take these guys out, and of course that leads to more awkward sex, this time on a ring construct magic carpet, which seems more Arabic than Asian, but I guess that works. Why not? Page 36 says... The two come into the Han village. They see that uh, essentially all the children and many of the women of the Han village had been slaughtered. However, there is no mention of Jade Moon's son, so there is a possibility that he may have escaped this massacre and might be alive. Again, I'm kind of thinking this may be the uh, the end cap for the story with Jade Moon's son eventually becoming the emperor, but that's just me reading into the story. Page 37, it doesn't make very much sense to me that this temple that was supposed to be the house for the dragon lords, these mystical beings, these monks that were supposed to protect the land, would eventually become overrun by slavers and you know thieves and murderers. Doesn't make any sense to me. And it also doesn't make sense to me on page 43 that Zhang Li is going to try and take down these slavers and traitors and rescue supposedly the last dragon lord in Lung Mountain without the use of his power ring. I mean, I know he feels the necessity to to prove himself as a person without using the ring because he feels that it will corrupt him, but he's proven prior to this that the ring is essentially supposed to be used, or he has had the ability to use the ring for altruistic or humanitarian purposes. But then my last note is on page 48, and it's it's a neat design here. You could tell from earlier images of the Lung Mountain, but the side of it has an image of a dragon encircling it with its head near the peak. Now, whether that's, you know, carved into the mountain by whomever, or whether that's an actual design that uh, the mountain came from. It's kind of a neat, it's kind of a neat look, and again, I like Glacey's art, especially in the backgrounds here, and this is a, a really good example of his his sort of background art here. But yeah, another good story with the uh, Elseworlds theme, and uh, a little bit better actually than the Green Lantern story. 
not that the Green Lantern story was bad, but I think with the inclusion of the very 90s villains at the end, it just didn't work for me as much. But that does it for the issues this time. Next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys, we're going to be covering Green Lantern number 142, obviously, where we'll find out just what the heck these 90 villains, these 90s villains in Inferno are going to be doing with the city and whether or not Kyle survives his third-degree burns to every part of his body but his butt. Plus, we're going to be finishing up the third story in the Dragon Lord storyline, and we'll find out if Zhong Li can rescue the Dragon Lord, overthrow the Emperor, and do other things all martial arts So, I hope you guys will come back in seven days for that episode. Until then, hope you guys have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time. Well, I'll talk next time. You'll listen to me next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Dinkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsacore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern. The opening song for today's show was David Bowie's China Girl, off his album Let's Dance. If you'd like to buy this album, buy this song, or buy anything else David Bowie has put out, I would mark that as a good purchase, because David Bowie's stuff is awesome. Plus, it would also be a good purchase if you went through the link at Two True Freaks. If you go to the website, twotruefreaks.com, there's a link in the upper left-hand corner for Amazon.com. Click on that link and you'll be transported to Amazon, where you can buy music, movies, DVDs, Blu-rays, games, whatever you could want, whether it be David Bowie's Let's Dance or any other type of music, and all for very, very low prices. And with the holidays coming up, the best place to shop online is Amazon.com, and the best place to go is TwoTrueFreaks.com to use the Amazon link. Because every time you use the link at twotruefreaks.com, a little money, given by Amazon, not taken from you, is shunted back to the website. You don't see anything else come out of your pocket, but it does help the website out. So anytime you are thinking about doing any purchasing online at amazon.com, be certain to use the link at twotruefreaks.com.